let's just take a moment and pray. Um, it's so awesome to see uh, all of your smiling faces this morning. It's, um, uh, I love it. This is, this is amazing. So let's pray. Uh, our Father, we love you and we thank you for your body. We thank you for each of these people. We thank you for uh, the fact that there is technology that allows us to be together, though we are apart. Lord, we thank you for the cross of Jesus that has bound us together, that has brought us together, that um, we're able to come and we're able to worship you and we're able to sing your praises uh, even being apart and, and we're able to hear um, your word. And, and uh, Lord, we, we are just deeply thankful for that. Um, Lord, I uh, think about what's happening in our world and uh, I think about just um, uh, the things that we're reading and the things that we're hearing on the news, um, how there's a, a worldwide issue that 316,000 people worldwide have contracted this virus, that 22,000 people here in the U.S. Um, have it, that 1,500 people in, in California, 350 in L.A. County, 30 in Ventura County. Um, and Lord, it's easy to hear those numbers and to, uh, to be a little overwhelmed. But I think of Paul's words that I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And we know that all of creation is groaning. And not only creation, but we ourselves. And we are the first fruits of the Spirit. And we groan inwardly as we await the adoption of our bodies, the adoption um, that will come when we're in your presence. And so, Lord, we are, are able to look at this situation and, and understand that you are good, that you're in control, that because you are good, we don't have to look anywhere else. Because you are great, we don't have to be in control. Because you are gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. Because you are glorious, we don't have to fear. And we can say with Paul, who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Lord, we praise you. And we thank you that you are in control of all things, that you are the God of creation and we can worship you. Lord, we pray that as we give you our worship this morning through our song, through the reading of your word, through uh, the way that we respond, Lord, we pray that we will be able to worship you in spirit and in truth, even though we're not together. I'm thankful that we as a body are able to do what Hebrews says and to um, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and especially as the days are hard and as we await for your coming. And so, Lord, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your church. We thank you that the gates of hell will not stand against it because you are building it. And so we trust it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, again, amazing to see uh, all of you, um, and uh, I, um, uh, you guys know I, I work for uh, a streaming service called Crackle, and um, uh, so 
last week, two weeks ago, I suppose, um, I, uh, you know, this thing had not gotten to the point where we were all locked down. And, um, and so uh, they were asking for ideas for programming. And I said, hey, I got an idea. Um, how about we do a, a whole series of, of movies? We just kind of have a whole channel and it's um, movies that have gone viral. And it'll be, you know, things like Outbreak and Contagion and the Andromeda Strain and and I Am Legend and all and uh, they said uh, Tim that's really insensitive and I said did you did I say I came up with that idea um, uh, <laughs> I, I I didn't hold on to that um, uh, until I was like I didn't bring it up again until I was home and uh, I don't know if you guys have been experiencing this with kids in the house but it's like uh, all of our glasses every single glass in the house seems to be out all over the place and I was like what was that movie about the end of the world where there was water glasses everywhere and Pearl said signs and so we actually watched signs with Jason and Joel because they wanted to know what it was like. And here's what was amazing about this movie. I hadn't seen it since, I don't know, 2004 or something like that. Um, But it's um, a former priest who is so bitter that his bitterness and anger just spills out all over his family because of the loss of his wife. And, and you just, you, you look at this guy and you go, man, here's a guy who is supposed to be a, a person of faith and his bitterness and his anger and his resentment and even his hatred just spills out on his brother and his kids. And, and it's, it's a story ultimately of, of him kind of coming back to faith. But um, uh, it reminded me uh, several years ago, I had a, a interaction with a, a lady on Facebook, and somebody had put her in contact with me and said, "Hey, uh, Tim seems to know everybody that is in your circle. If you're trying to find this person, he might be the one to to connect with." And we realized pretty quickly that we had a lot of um, the same friends, and 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 based on where she went to school, I knew one of the teachers at the school that she went to, and I said, "Hey, did you ever have this teacher?" And the next text thread I got through Facebook was just all of her bitterness and all of her anger and all of her rage at this person that she hadn't seen in 20 years. Her, her notes was like, this person humiliated me. They gave me the only low grade that I ever had in school. Um, they refused to hire me and my brother in their computer lab. And because of that, we had to go get hard menial labor jobs. And, and um, you know, it made our life really difficult. And for the last 20 years, um, we have worked our tails off to be able to get positions and and, uh, to be able to get the opportunities that that person should have given us. And now 20 years later, we're successful and, and, and we've proven ourselves to that person. We have advanced degrees and we work for fortune 500 companies and we own homes and, and we make a lot of money. And it was amazing. I, I took that note and I, I forwarded it to this teacher and I said, Hey, I don't know if maybe there's something you need to do to resolve things. And, and that teacher looked at the note and said, it's so weird. I, I don't remember teaching them. Here's, here's a woman who had been so defined by her bitterness and her anger and her rage that 20 years after this incident happened, and a person who did not even know her name was still shaping her, her life and shaping because she was altering her life based on her bitterness and her anger. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there, right? um, Tanya and I celebrated 22 years of of, uh, marriage yesterday, and we were kind of looking back at our first year of marriage. And our first year of marriage, 
literally, um, we were working for a Christian ministry that hurt us really deeply. Um, I was so angry and so bitter that um, for almost a year, I would not go to church. I can't imagine now, 22 years later, I love the church. I, I want to give my life to the church. But, but, but then I was so hurt and I was so angry and I was so bitter. And I experienced what all of us know, which is bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It, it, it is something that will destroy us. It's something that, that we find ourselves holding a grudge. And maybe you've done this where you, somebody says something or somebody does something or something happens at work and you feel like, like the, the bottom has been pulled out from under you and that they've done so much damage that days or months or even years later, you find yourself not being able to let that thing go. Well, what happens when the only person to blame is God himself? What happens when, when you look at what's happening and, and your life has been so upended that, and, and there's no one to blame except for God. When you get to the point where that you look and say, God allowed this to happen. Only, only God could have, have prevented this, or only God could have been the one to, um, to keep this from happening. And, and when that happens, we, we can end up in a crisis of faith. We can end up in a point where we look and go, is, is God really great? Is he really powerful? Because if he's really great and powerful, then he should have been able to stop this. And if he is great and powerful and he didn't stop this, then is God good? And, and so we find ourselves asking the question, like, is God actually powerful? Is God actually good? And when we begin to wrestle with those questions, it's really easy that in those thoughts, the seed of bitterness begins to take root in our heart. Well, I've been reading through the book of Ruth, and in the first chapter of Ruth, we are introduced to a woman who not only admits her bitterness, but she is clearly blaming God for what's happened to her. And and I, I went to the book of Ruth because this week I was in Costco, and um, uh, I went into the, the line where all the bread was, and there was no bread. It was It was astonishing. I've never been in a Costco that was out of bread, and they were out of bread and the grocery store was out of bread. And, and it just reminded me of Ruth chapter one, because it says that there was no bread in Bethlehem and Bethlehem is uh, the word Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. And, and for there to be no bread in the house of bread is just this astonishing, astonishing thing. So in Ruth chapter one, and I'm going to try to share my screen if I can do this without a, uh, uh, messing things up um, and share. There we go. And if you can see my screen, give me a thumbs up. Um, yeah, all right, good. There we go. So uh, in Ruth chapter one, uh, verse one, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, um, that is more than just a date stamp, okay? When it says, in the, na- in the days that the judges ruled, there is an, an emotional, psychological 
description tied to that date. Uh, it's it's like um, in recent days, people have been saying during the bubonic plague, during the the Spanish flu of 1918, uh, during the Great Depression, um, after 9/11, you know, after Pearl Harbor, those those kinds of psychological date stamps are there, and and this is a psychological date stamp. This is a uh, emotional date stamp, and it is also a spiritual um, and a theological date stamped. Because if you go back one page, so if, if you're having a hard time finding Ruth, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? So right before Ruth is Judges. And the very last verse of Judges says this, in the days when there, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. So this is what's happening in the time of judges. If, if um, you look at it, it says, in the days the judges ruled, there was famine. And this is important, and we've talked about this often, but if you go back to, to Deuteronomy 28 to 30, Deuteronomy 28 to 30 is, is where uh, the blessings and the cursings uh, are given to the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, um, when it talks about there being famine in the land, it's important because it tells you what's happening as a result of the people's covenant with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I, I don't have these verses to put on the screen, I'm sorry, but uh, verse... Uh, Chapter 28, verse 1 says, If you will faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments that I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high and all the nations of the earth, and the Lord your God will set you high above the nations, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed you will be in the city, and blessed you will be in the field, and blessed will be the fruit of your womb, and blessed will be the ground, and blessed will be your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock, and blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed you will be when you come in, and blessed you will be when you go out, and the Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. But then he goes on and he gives the other side of things. If, if people disobey, it says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all of his commandments and, and his statues that I commanded you today, then all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you will be in the city and cursed you will be in the field and cursed will be your basket and cursed will be your kneading bowl and cursed will be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flocks and cursed you will be when you come in and cursed you will be when you go out. And what you see is there's this time when the judges ruled and, and in the book of judges, you see this cycle of peace and prosperity and everything's fine. And then people turn their hearts away from God and they begin to experience um, just life apart from him doing right the, the, what they consider right in their own eyes, and they're disobedient. And as they're disobedient, God begins to discipline them with the curses of Deuteronomy 28. And they begin to experience famine and hardship and war and, and people coming against them. And that discipline is not God trying to pay them back. It's God trying to bring them back. And so all of these things happen to them. And then they turn their hearts and they say, God, we're coming back to you. We're returning to you. And he delivers them from the pestilence and from the disease and from the, the famine and from the war. And then they begin to experience peace and prosperity again. And if you read the book of Judges, it's like reading a big circle. And you're just reading the same thing over and over again. And so it says, in the days that the judges ruled, there was a famine 
And so we know that they are in the point of discipline where God is trying to bring them back. And a man in Bethlehem, the house of bread in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Well, okay, again, this is something that we have to look at through the lens of the covenant. The covenant was um, God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to give you a land that you is your inheritance and you're to stay there and it will be yours for eternity. And I will give you a seed. I'll give you one who will crush the head of the serpent and, and will conquer sin and death and hell. And I will give you a blessing. That is, you will be a blessing to the nations. You will be a, a blessing to all people. And so here's a guy who he's under the discipline of the Lord and he does not believe in God's covenant. He does not embrace that God has given them this land. And he decides he's going to take himself away from the discipline of God. And he's going to take himself away from God's covenant with him and try to go to a place in Moab. And, and Moab, I mean, of all places to go, Moab is about the worst place you could consider going. Because if, if you go to Moab, you are going to a place where um, the Moabite people originated out of an, uh, an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. The, the Moabite king, Balak, was the one who um, uh, sent Balaam to try to curse Israel. And if you've read the story of the talking donkey, then you know what, the, what that's all about. Um, Moabite women, according to Numbers t- chapter 25, um, they were known to intentionally try to seduce Israelite men to bring them to worship their gods. And when you go to the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 3, the Moabites were oppressing Israel. It says that they were oppressing Israel in the days of Eglon the king. And so for him to go, he's not just going to, it's not like somebody here saying, hey, my job dried up in Southern California and I'm moving to Tennessee. It's, it's, I'm going, I'm taking myself away from where God has said I have to be. And I'm putting myself in a place where it's the enemies of God and God's people. And I'm willing to go live there because I want to take care of my family and my finances. And taking care of family and finances are a good thing, but you can see that it has become an ultimate thing. And that ultimate thing is not what it was meant to be. So it says, uh, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, which literally means, my God is king. So here's a man who lives in the house of bread and then there is no bread. His name means my God is king and he's acting as if there is no king, that God isn't his king and God hasn't made him promises. And the name of his wife was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malon and Shilion. And they were Ephathrath, if I can spit that word out, there we go, uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. So they didn't just go to try to escape for a time. They were like, hey, we're going to set up shop. This is going to be our new home. This is where we're going to live. And so they decided that they were going to stay there. Um, And let's see if I can make it go to the next slide. I apologize in advance. Here we go. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died and was left uh, and and she was left with her two sons and these two took moabite wives the name of one was orpah and the name of the other was ruth and they lived there about 10 years and both malon and chilion died so there was uh, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband there we go 
Then Naomi rose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Um, so so uh, something is, is about to happen that goes back again to Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Um, and she is, Naomi is about to return. And, and it says in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, and this, this is where the word return is, is really important. All through the Old Testament, you see the word return or the word repent. Um, and it is the Hebrew word shuv. And the, the, it, it is not just to turn back again, but to return to covenant relationship with God. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says this, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curses which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you as he's disciplined you, and you return, you shuv to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast in the other parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes who have persecuted you, and you again will obey the voice of the Lord your God and his commandments that I command you. And the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in the work of your hand and the fruit of your womb and all of your cattle and the fruit of the ground. The Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. When you return to the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, this idea that Naomi is about to return, you, re you read that and you think, this is great because she's about to do something that her, her husband and her, her sons did not do. If we go back and we look at, at what they did, um, it says that, that, that they went to sojourn, right? And, and we studied James not terribly long ago. And James chapter one says that, that every man is, um, is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, of his own desires, and enticed. He's hooked. And, and when that desire has given birth to sin, sin, when it is finished, brings death. And you look at, at what happened. They, they went to sojourn, and then they got hooked. They remained there. And then what had happened? Sin gave, desire gave birth to sin. They took on Moabite wives, wives who honored other gods, and, and they chose to stay there. And when all of it was finished, there was nothing but death, right? And so, so you see this pattern going through. And so when you read Naomi is about to return, it's, it's like, oh, good. This, this is amazing. It says, she rose with her daughters-in-laws to return from the country of Moab because she heard the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on their way to return to the land. Not to return to God, not to return to Yahweh, the covenant keeper, not to return with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to return to the land. And then you understand Naomi's doing what her husband did. Naomi's doing what her sons did. 
Her idols of family and finance are still firmly in place. And she is not returning to the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. She's just returning to the land because that's where there's finances and that's where there's family and that's where she can be taken care of. She is a widow living in a foreign land and she would basically have to beg if she was going to stay there. And so she's just returning to where she has safety, where she has her safety net. And so it says, uh, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return, she's using a covenant word in a very uncovenant way, shuv each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest. She's talking about something that God promised in the covenant, that they would find rest. They wouldn't have wars and battles, that they wouldn't have um, contention, they, that they would have peace. May, may the Lord grant you rest in the, in the house of her husband. She's, she's saying, go away, marry your, get something that God promised in the covenant outside the covenant. And she kissed them and they lift up their voices and they wept and they said, no, we will return with you. Like, we'll do the same thing you're doing. We, you, we will return to the land and to your people. And it says, but Naomi said, return my daughters, turn back, return my daughters. Will you go with me? I have, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Return my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter. And this word bitter, we're going to see with, with um, Naomi throughout this book. Um, it is exceedingly bitter for, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. She still, still sees herself as a victim. She sees herself as one that God has struck to pay her back instead of to bring her back. She does not understand God's discipline. And so it says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That is, she kissed her goodbye. And she left. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. That, that is, shuv to your people, shuv to their gods. Not return to the covenant keeper, but re return to the gods of the Moabites. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me also, if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. It's literally, she, she stopped talking to her. <laughs> you read this and you go, man, Naomi... Um, Naomi is someone who is so consumed with family and, and finance that she has made them ultimate things instead of just good things. And because they have become ultimate things, they became fatal things to her family. And she is still embracing those things. They are the idols of her heart. And we see in the way that she encourages her daughters to go back to their gods, in the way that in, now she's, she's going to rename herself bitter. Like This is what it says. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So they're, they're back where it started. And they came to Bethlehem, and the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said, do not call me Naomi. 
call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? She says she's so disbelieving, and she is so consumed with her bitterness that she asks them to call her bitter. Mara is, is a, a, a place in the wilderness where the people came to and they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. And so as, as they were there, God instructed them what to do. And he turned this bitter water to sweet water that they could drink. And this is the point where he introduces himself as the Lord, your God, your healer. He says this in Exodus chapter 15. He says, uh, if you will diligently listen to the voice of your Lord, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the Lord, your God, your healer. And so she is, by saying, call me Mara, she is saying, I, I don't believe that he is the Lord, my God. And I don't believe that he is my healer. And she's so consumed with her bitterness that she can't even, she can't even acknowledge the covenant keeping God who is, is trying to draw her back to him. And so she makes the statement that she went away full and the Lord brought her back empty. And she's so blinded by her idols. She doesn't see that God didn't send her back empty. He sent her back with Ruth and, 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 Ruth is actually kind of the, the twist in this, right? I mean, she's, she's the one that is the unexpected piece. But Naomi is so consumed by her bitterness and by her anger, it's because she took a good thing and she made it an ultimate thing. Um, Tim Keller wrote a great little book called Counterfeit Gods. And if, um, if I can recommend you read this, it, this is actually shaping this series that, that we're doing through Ruth. But, but Tim Keller makes this statement. Um, he says, sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning and your hope, there's no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. And, and Naomi has lost what's ultimate to her. She's lost her husband. She's lost her boys. She's lost any kind of financial security. And those things were ultimate things. And they were never meant, only eternal things are meant to be ultimate things. And she, she made those things ultimate. And so she is in complete despair. And she says, God sent me away full and brought me back empty. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Well, in this, you have um, the, the, the pagan woman, the woman from Moab, from Moab who is the contrast to, um, to, to all of what Naomi just said. Naomi, uh, Ruth um, has married one of Naomi's sons, and it doesn't say in chapter one which one it is, but, but chapter four, verse 10 tells us that she married Malon, and she stayed married to him for 10 years, and then he died. And then her mother-in-law decides to, to move to a foreign land because widows have no, no standing 
in any foreign land, or, or they wouldn't even have standing in Israel, except that God had made a commandment to his people that every three years they were to set aside 10% of everything, an extra tithe, to take care of widows and orphans, and to take care of strangers who were in the land, and they were supposed to cut their fields in such a way so that people could glean from the outsides of the fields, and, and they wouldn't take everything in. And so God had a way to provide for widows and orphans, and so she is going to, to go back not to God, but to the land. And, and Ruth, who's the pagan, begins to uh, talk to her mother-in-law. And, and her mother-in-law is saying, go back, go back. And Ruth says, don't urge me to go. And in this, you see Ruth willing and to ratchet up her commitment to Naomi because of her commitment to the God that Naomi should be, should be worshiping. She says, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. That is to say, I'm renouncing my family. Your people will be my people. I'm renouncing my nationality. Your Elohim, your God. If we were to, to talk in this time about Greek or Roman gods or, or any, any regional God, um, they may use the word Elohim. This is not the word Yahweh. Your religion will be my religion, if you want to think of it that way. So you're, I'm renouncing my family. I'm renouncing my nationality. I'm renouncing my religion. Where you die, I will die and be buried. I am renouncing any hope that I have for the afterlife tied to my regional gods. If, if you're not buried, I mean, when you look in the Old Testament, when, when um, uh, Joseph says, will you take my, bo- my body to be buried outside of Egypt? The, the idea of people being buried in a region, they, were, they wanted to be buried where their regional god was because they thought that their afterlife was tied to that. She has renounced everything, her family, her nationality, her religion, her hope for the, the afterlife. And she says, um, where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And, and when it says, may the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E, may Yahweh, may the covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the God who always keeps his promise, the God who said, I will give you blessings and curse. I set before you life and death. May Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts from me. Ruth has made, she has sworn solemnly on the name of the covenant keeper. I'm staying with you no matter what. And Naomi knew at that point, it was over. And what she do? She just stops talking to her. And when, when she goes into town, it says that they were all stirred up. The whole town was stirred up because of them. It was Naomi coming back and she's coming back with a Moabite woman. She's coming, I mean, showing up in Bethlehem with a Moabite woman is like showing up at a bar mitzvah with a bacon cheeseburger. You, you just don't do it. And so here she is. She's, she's um, bringing in, they're all stirred up, but but Naomi acts like Ruth isn't there. And they say, is this Naomi? And she says, like, I went away full. I came back empty. She's not even acknowledging the Moabite daughter-in-law that is actually more in line with the covenant-keeping God than she is. And so um, Ruth makes this promise, and, and uh, it says, so Naomi returned. But we know what Naomi returned to. Naomi returned to the land. She returned to financial 
stability. She returned to family members. We find, we'll find out later in the book that she had family members there. She returned to people who knew her in Bethlehem. She, she returned, but she didn't return to God. She didn't return in a covenant way. Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. I read several commentaries, and, and each of the commentaries um, looked at this, and they said, yeah, this is really weird wording. It's really choppy. We don't understand why it said Naomi returned, and then Ruth returned too. Like, why not just say Naomi and Ruth returned? Why not just chop some of this off? And, and the reason that the words are clunky here is because they want to make a, a point. Naomi returned, but she returned in a very different, uncovenant way. Ruth, who had never been to Bethlehem, returned, but she returned in a covenant way. And she returned to the God of Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. She returned believing in Yahweh, the covenant keeper. And so Naomi returned one way, Ruth returned the other. And they came to Bethlehem. They came to the house of bread at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's now no famine in the land. The circle has gone through. They have, have gone from disobedience to discipline to repentance and, and returning. The rest of the land has returned to the Lord their God, and they are now beginning to experience God's blessing and, and God's um, uh, faithfulness in restoring them. And so she comes to begin to experience the restoration of Israel, but her own heart has not been restored. Her idols are still fixed firmly, and she um, is not, she is still a covenant breaker in the midst of the, the country that's being restored. Some of you are, are Christians, probably most of you are Christians, um, and, and yet you've been pursuing your idols. You're, you're sojourning like they did, seeking satisfaction, remaining in things that you know you're not supposed to remain in, the habits of your heart that are pulling you away from God. And, and now some of you are experiencing the bitterness of your deepest longings being unfulfilled because these good things have become ultimate things. And Jesus is calling you to return. He's calling you to turn back to your relationship with him. So some of you may not be Christians and, and idolatry is all you've ever been taught. Um, in your mind, the pursuit of happiness is the thing that should be chased with zeal. It's, it's a fundamental right. And so you chase family or finances or fame or notoriety or success or whatever that thing is. And, and what you have to understand is no temporal thing was made to be an ultimate thing. Only eternal things, and that the only eternal one is made to be our ultimate thing. And so um, we are being called to return, and you are being called to return to maybe something you've never been to before, to return to a relationship with God, to come to a relationship with God, the covenant keeper that you've never had before, and to make God your ultimate thing. Luke chapter 15 tells this really um, uh, telling story. It's, it's actually, it's, it's kind of all of our story. Luke chapter 15 is the story of, of the prodigal son. And in the story of the prodigal son, uh, you may have heard it. Uh, a, a son comes to his father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'd like to take all of your stuff. Uh, I wish I could get like everything I would get when you die. Uh, I'd like to have it now. And his dad takes his belongings and he splits them up and he gives his son his inheritance. And the son goes off into a foreign land and he blows it all. He just spends everything that his dad had and he, he wastes it. And, and he has lots of friends until he runs out of money. 
And you see in, in Luke chapter 15 that, that uh, there comes a time when there's a famine. And that should be a trigger for anybody who understands the Old Testament. They go, oh, wow, famine. Famine is discipline. God is trying to bring him back, not pay him back. And, and this guy persists. He thinks, I'm just going to make this. He is so focused on persisting and staying that he gets to the point where he is the only food he can get is the food that he is feeding to pigs. And it says that one day he came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, he said, what am I doing here? My father has lots of bread and my father feeds even his servants. I will return. I will shuv. I will go back to my father. I will return to a relationship with my father. And I'll, I'll say, look, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. At least just, just make me a, a servant. And so he goes back, he returns to his father, and while he is a ways off, his father sees him, and he runs out to him, and he embraces him. And he puts a robe on his back, and he puts a ring on his finger, and he says, let's throw a party, because my son who was dead is now alive. That is what we experience when we return, whether we're not Christians or whether we are Christians. We return to a loving father who comes out and, and pursues us, who says, I'll accept you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how you've consumed everything I've given you. I am taking you back and I will forgive all of your sins and I will make you my son and not a servant, not a slave. You will be one that's accepted completely. Those of you who are familiar with Dorothy Sayers, Dorothy Sayers wrote the, the Peter Whimsey detective novels that um, ultimately were adapted for TV uh, by the BBC. Um, Dorothy Sayers was a brilliant woman, a brilliant novelist. She was one of the very first females to ever graduate from Oxford University. And, um, and so as she was writing these books, she was writing these Peter Whimsey novels. And after several books, she began to be concerned about this character in her book because he was lonely and he was isolated. And, and so um, she wrote in a new character in her book. She wrote in the character of Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane was brilliant. She was one of the first female graduates from Oxford University. And you, you kind of see what happened. Um, Dorothy Sayers basically had created a character and she had created the whole world that he was in. And she loved this character and didn't want him to face isolation. And so she wrote herself into the story. And by writing herself into the story, she was able to uh, go and to, to basically um, address this character's isolation and loneliness and to love him. And Harriet Vane and, and Peter Whimsey got married and they lived happily ever after. Well, that is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is that God created this world that we lived in and God created us. And he wanted to save us from the despair and the separation that we were experiencing being apart from him. And so he wrote himself into the world to be born as a man, to die in our place, to rise as our savior, to ascend as our king, to intercede as our priest, to, to one day return as our champion and as our redeemer so that we could live with him happily ever after. When we think about bitterness, we think about what made Naomi bitter. She became bitter because good things had become ultimate things. And when good things become ultimate things, they become fatal things. What is it that makes us bitter towards God? It's the same thing. As God begins to draw us back, he's calling us back, not to pay us back, 
but to bring us back. As he begins to discipline us, as we begin to experience pain, as we begin to experience loss, as we experience all of these things, God is drawing us back. And, and some of you have already started to experience pain and loss in this crisis. Some of you, your, your jobs are drying up. You're, you don't have the things that you need. You're, you're maybe even watching um, friends and family. I look at Clayton up in the Pacific Northwest. That area has been so hit. And there could be friends of ours that, that they get sick. Some may die. And we look and we go, Lord, what are you doing? And if our relationships or if our financial security, if our family members are ultimate things, then as God begins to take these things, then we begin to look at those and go, we're inconsolable. We're, we, we are only bitter and angry. But it is in, in making him our ultimate thing. As we make him our ultimate thing, then, then as God begins to take things, we look at Job. And Job said, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He said that after losing all of his kids and all of his belongings. And though he slay me, I will trust him. When we get to that point, then, then God is our ultimate thing. And while we can be sad and we can be disappointed and we can be hurt that, that, that things are taken away from us, ultimately, the thing that's most important is never taken away from us. God is calling us to return. He is calling us like Ruth to return in and to return in a covenant way and not to return in the way that Naomi did. Not to return trying to solve things for our family and our finance, but to return to him and trust him. For for both Christians and non-Christians, God has provided a means to return. It's not your effort. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it's not your righteousness. By grace you are saved through faith and not of your works. It is a gift of God. It's it's the God's grace given in the person of Jesus so that he might purchase our salvation and to give us life when what we deserve is death and to to put our trust in that. 1 John 1, 9 is true for both Christians and non-Christians. If you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so if you have made um, an idol of family or finances or of other things, God is calling you to return. And it's a returning in faith that we're able to find the satisfaction of the eternal becoming ultimate so that we may lay aside the bitterness that comes from lesser things. I'm looking forward to going through uh, the book of Ruth with you and, and kind of talking through all of these things. Um, if if uh, in the coming weeks you have an opportunity to pick this up on Kindle, uh, again, I think this, this little book um, called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promise of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, I think uh, uh, it will uh, enhance uh, our learning time together. So I am going to stop sharing at this point. I'm going to ask uh, Ed and Dana to... Uh, to lead us in a, a final song. And then um, uh, before we go, uh, I want to say a blessing over each of you. Um, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So let's see, Ed and Dana, I think I have taken you off mute and you can share slides. <laughs>